Ahead of Their Time is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Producer Joe Sykes, what should we watch this week? So I've been reading a lot about revolutionaries for this episode of the series, and it's really got me kind of thinking about revolutionary politics and history. Hmm, okay, let me see. I think I have the perfect thing for you, Joe. There's a video lecture here about women's rights in the French Revolution. Ah, that sounds really good. Okay, I'm sold. When can we start? How about right now? We've got a great deal for a month of unlimited access when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time. So let's check it out, and then we can catch up a little later in the podcast. Red Wings trying to get the sweep. Three seconds left into the zone. The Detroit Red Wings on the standing In 1997, the Detroit Red Wings won their first Stanley Cup in 42 years. Their secret weapons? Kozlov, Fedorov, Fetisov, Konstantinov, Larionov. The Russian Five. How appropriate, a roaring Joe Lewis for two members of the former Soviet Red Army team. Former, they are now Detroit Red Wings. But even 10 years earlier, no one could have imagined this moment. Russians in the NHL winning the Stanley Cup. A lot of teams did not really believe they could play in the league. This is Mike Smith, former GM of the Winnipeg Jets. And several years before the Red Wings went all the way, there were almost no Russians playing in the NHL. Mike tried to change that. He personally made trips to Russia to scout players. He drafted as many Russian guys as he could. He even sent North American coaches and players to train in Russia. But with all that effort, the outcome for Mike Smith was disappointing at best and disastrous at worst. From 538 and Hot Takedown, this is Ahead of Their Time, a series that takes a look at the renegade teams, coaches, and players who helped change their sports forever, even if no one appreciated it in the moment. I'm Neil Payne. This episode, we're talking about Mike Smith, the NHL's Russian Revolution, and how Russians change the way Canadians and Americans think about hockey. In the 1970s, the NHL looked very different than it does now. Almost all of its players hailed from Canada, and they also played a very particular way. Let's just dump the puck in and, and chase after it, and whoever gets there first gets the puck, and if the other team gets the puck first, well, we're, we'll just take it from them and you know smack them into the boards. Tal Pinchevsky wrote the book Breakaway, about hockey players who defected from Eastern Europe during the Cold War. The style he's talking about is called dump and chase, and it's a little like passing to yourself. From just past the halfway point of the rink, you dump the puck toward the goal, and then you chase after it. Canadian hockey, you know, traditionally or stereotypically, is not a finesse game. It was hard-nosed, old-time hockey. Gabe Desjardins, a hockey writer and statistical analyst. Uh, if you watch NHL hockey in the 1970s, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fighting bench-clearing brawls. There's all kinds of crazy things happening. Cashman going at it at center. And Cashman can really throw them. They're both going at it toe-to-toe. And fisticuffs are part of the establishment. The good thing about fighting is that you can restore respect. And uh, that's something that you need in the game. Canadian hockey relied on the individual, and it valued strength, 
over strategy. But on the other side of the globe, a totally different brand of hockey was developing. It was far more uh, balletic, you know, far more graceful. That balletic quality came from a man named Anatoly Tarasov. He coached the Soviet Red Army team and in doing so became a patriarch of the Soviet hockey style. He studied the physical movements of ballet and the mental game of chess. On the ice, that translated to a totally different way of playing hockey than you would see in Canada. It was more keeping control of the puck, passing, speed, skating, shooting, all five skaters on the ice and molding them into a single unit. Here's a clip from Of Miracles and Men, the 30 for 30 film about the so-called miracle on ice from the Russian perspective. Among Canadians, Tarasov wrote, it is the man with the puck who masterminds the pass. But among Soviet players, it is the man without the puck. The Soviet style intentionally reflected the country's politics. The Russian government told Tarasov to develop a way of playing that was distinct from the Canadians' bruising, individualistic style. On Tarasov's team, players cooperated, moving the puck together toward the opponent's goal. This means that in Canada, four men depend on one man, while in our hockey, one man depends on four. Dumpetace might have had an edge in North America because the players were big, strong, and physical. But the Soviet style allowed for more possession of the puck. And more possession means more shots on goal, which ultimately means more goals. But just because the Canadians were more physical didn't mean that the Russians weren't strong in their own right. As part of the Soviet machine, they underwent intense physical training year-round. There's old footage of young Russian hockey players in what must be the dog days of summer. They're wearing short shorts, sweating profusely, carrying their teammates up steps for exercise, tossing boulders to each other. I think calling it a factory or an assembly line is, is not an exaggeration. They would comb through thousands of, of really young boys trying to find the best young hockey players in the country. And as soon as they identified them, they would immediately funnel them into their program. The Russian and Canadian ecosystems existed in parallel, and they almost never interacted with each other. Even in the Olympics, the best Canadians couldn't compete because international rules banned pro athletes from playing. But in 1972, after the Soviet team publicly stated that they were ready to challenge the best that Canada had to offer, the two enemy countries organized the Summit Series. They would play during the height of the Cold War. If you ask anyone who grew up in Canada, that series between a, a team of Canadian all-stars and the Soviet national team was really a watershed moment in international hockey. And there was this assumption on the Canadian side that Canada was really going to destroy the Russian teams. You know, that Canadian hockey skill was so far beyond the Russians. But by the beginning of the eighth game, the teams were tied at three games apiece with one draw. And it might have ended in another tie, but 34 seconds before the buzzer of that final game... Here's another shot, by the 
So the Canadians did squeak by with the win, but... And the Soviets came very close to actually beating the best Canadian players in the world. This puts a scare into Canadians about their, their hockey talent for the first time. Any executive in a professional hockey team at that time knew that if it was possible, they'd love to have a Soviet player on their team because they were clearly elite players. But even if Canadian hockey executives started to see the Soviets in a different light, their governments weren't budging. Politics prevented any hockey-related border crossings from really happening. NHL teams had no way of getting access to those players. And it would remain that way for many years. During that time, the hockey scene in Canada saw another big change. The National Hockey League has approved an expansion plan that will increase its number of teams to 21 for the 1979-80 season. As part of the deal, the NHL absorbed a team from a small, remote city in Midwestern Canada the Winnipeg Jets. Winnipeg is one of the smallest markets in the NHL, but it's in the heart of hockey country, the Canadian Prairie. The Jets were the only really major league team that, uh, that Winnipeg had, so that's, that was just the thing to do. Curtis Walker is a Jets superfan and the author of two books about the Jets. Probably two more books than anyone else has written about that team. All they had to start with from the 79-80 uh, season were, were, were a couple of players that they were allowed to protect, and the rest were just pretty much cast-offs from the other teams. Over the next several years, the Jets were up and down, but they could never quite hold it together. That's when Mike Smith came aboard. Mike Smith had been working his way up through the Jets organization for a few years already when the owners named him GM in 1988. I, mean, I knew I was an outsider. I could never be in the Canadian Old Boys Club. I wasn't Canadian, and I don't join clubs. <laughs> He's American, which already made him an oddball for one of the most Canadian hockey teams you can imagine. He also had a pretty unusual backstory. He earned his Ph.D. in Russian studies, but instead of going into academia, he wound up as a hockey coach. He figured out a way to combine his two loves when he went to a hockey coaching symposium in Moscow. And that's where he first made connections with the NHL, which eventually led to a job in the league. So it was almost inconceivable that an outsider like Mike could succeed in the brutish, anti-intellectual NHL. But somehow he worked his way up to be the GM of the Jets. Mike definitely enjoys being different. He still brags about how the press used to beat up on him during his time in Winnipeg and how he gave it right back to them. So not surprisingly, he wasn't going to be a status quo kind of GM. So whenever you become GM and you're rebuilding an organization, your goal is simply to make your team better, your organization stronger. And to that end... Mike Smith came in and just started cleaning house. When it came time for him to replace the players he'd let go, he went looking in the very place you might expect from a Russophile, the Soviet Union. Russians were not allowed to come to North America during the Cold War. The few who did were seen as defectors. And for the most part, it remained nearly impossible to draft players from the Soviet Union. So an extraordinary night of euphoria in Berlin. Within hours of East Germany's decision to let its people go by opening the border to the West, the city erupted in a frenzy of celebration. East German border guards watched as jubilant crowds danced on the infamous Berlin Wall that's divided Europe for a generation. So when Mike Smith saw the Berlin Wall come down, he figured it was high time to try to get some of these amazing players he'd seen and heard about. 
even if it meant plopping a bunch of communists down in the middle of a staunchly capitalist society. He started by picking two Russians in the 1989 draft, even though it was still illegal then for them to come to Canada. The press was skeptical. There was one media scrum where they were really on me. So I said to him, look, you guys better learn to spell their names and pronounce their names. They're coming, and they're going to keep coming, and pretty soon they're going to be on every team in the National Hockey League. Once the Soviet Union actually collapsed in 1991, we jumped in completely. I don't know that this has ever happened in, in any other sport. Here's hockey analyst Gabe Desjardins. The floodgates were opened to a new talent base, and teams jumped on it immediately. After the break, Mike Smith taps into this new well of Russian talent, but it doesn't go exactly as planned. Hey, Joe. While the listeners were off learning about Russian hockey, we watched a video lecture from the Great Courses Plus about feminists in the French Revolution right here on my iPhone. Yeah, wow. I mean, these women were badasses. They actually ransacked the armory in Paris, demanding their rights. Why do we only ever hear about the old white guys when it comes to history? I know, right? But if you sign up for the Great Courses Plus, you can learn about other badass women in the past and also in the present. And you can even learn about other revolutionaries. There are courses on great minds of the medieval world, living in the French Revolution and the age of Napoleon. And the lectures you're watching are coming from some of the best academics and intellectuals in the country. Cool. I mean, I'm really filling my head with knowledge right now. I don't even know if I'm going to have time to actually produce the last three episodes of this series. Don't go too far, Joe. But if you want to learn more first, you have to sign up for The Great Courses Plus. Right now, ahead of their time, listeners and, okay, podcast producers like you, get a whole month of unlimited access to all of their lectures, free of charge. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time. Right now, to get an entire month of unlimited access to all of the Great Courses Plus lectures when you sign up, all for free. And now, back to hockey. We have the Jets moving into position now to make their first pick. And here's what the Jets are looking for. Some goaltending long-term, I guess, Bob, and two-way wingers with some size. The 1992 draft was the first one after the Soviet Union collapsed. The Toronto Sports Network announcers called it the year of the European. They go to an American. Mike Smith, of course, very strong European influence, especially Russian. Let's see if they jump in on one of those two big wingers. The Jets were looking for a winger, and there were two great Canadian wingers still left in the first round. It was a no-brainer to pick them, right? Well, not for Mike Smith. Instead, he went for... The Winnipeg Jets are very honored and pleased to select Sergei Botan from Dynamo Moscow. I didn't even catch the last name on that one. Leave it to the Winnipeg Jets and Mike Smith. They have found an unknown Russian player. Well, look at Mike Smith laughing. He's getting a big kick out of this because he says... Nobody knows who this guy is. And you know what? <laughs> this secret. could prove to be one of the embarrassing moments of the draft where you're sitting there and you're saying, who the heck is this guy? Well, it we'll sounded start. like Sergei Bozman. It was actually Sergei Bouton, a defenseman from a small town in what's now Belarus. After Bouton, Mike Smith went on to use eight more of his 12 total draft picks on players from the former Soviet Union. That was on top of all the other players he drafted in previous years who were just starting to make their way to the U.S. 
like this guy. Hi, I'm Alex Zamnov. Uh, I used to play for Winnipeg Jets from 92 to 95. Alex remembers the first time he met Mike Smith at the Canada Cup in 1991. He brought me jersey and uh, with number 10 and uh, jersey Winnipeg Jets. So and he said, like, just uh, keep working and we're going to wait for you when you're ready. The next year, Alex arrived in Canada speaking no English. So even simple things like going out to eat became... Difficult. Difficult. It's maybe go restaurant because uh, you can read and you can speak. So I always order like Caesar salad and steak. That's all. <laughs> what I know in that time. <laughs> I think off the ice, I, I don't think it was easy. Jay Grossman was an agent for many of the Russian players of the early 90s, including Alex. I mean, if you could think about basic things like buying a house or buying a car, or, uh, some of these transactions were a lot different in North America than, than they had been for them or their parents back in Russia. And then there was Winnipeg to contend with. Winnipeg, Winnipeg, Winnipeggers have an affectionate nickname for their hometown, Winterpeg. The weather is brutal. Those years when I grew up in Russia, yeah, we have like a lot of snow, cold winter, but uh, compared to Winnipeg, I can say Winnipeg much colder city in Moscow. You go to a restaurant, but uh, your car still run the engine because you don't want to like freeze in that like after when you come back after dinner. <laughs> so. It was a small city that felt like a small town, especially compared to Alex's hometown of Moscow. Anywhere you go, there, everybody recognizes you. It's kind of tough to go someplace and sit quiet. So always, like people come and talk to you, try to talk to you. And first time, really, it's uh, I have no idea just what the guys ask me. I just smiling, but. It's, it's easy live when you win, but when you lose the games, it's tough. Sometimes it's, it's better stay home. It was very difficult for some of our Russian players once they came. There's a, a number of uh, Canadian national media people that went after the Russian players. Uh, we had people with, from cars who yelled at our Russian players, you commie bastards, go back to Russia. And then on the ice, Zhamnov had his own set of struggles. Much faster, game tougher, and uh, small rink. You just have to learn, you know, like, have to take time for adaptation because uh, everything is different, you know. It took me too, like, a little while. Like, I remember I scored, like, first goal probably after 16 games. It might have taken him 16 games to score, but once he got into it, Alex was able to put up great numbers for the Jets. Down the right side, Kemnov looking again, he shoots, he scores! What a move! His fifth of the game! Mike also drafted the goaltender Nikolai Habibulin, and he'd go on to be one of the best goalies in league history. When Mike got these really talented Russian players, he knew how to use them. The Russians didn't want to play dump and chase, and neither did Mike. Like you would ask a player who played for a coach to dump it in, and the player would say to his teammate, we work like hell to get the puck, and then he wants us to dump it in. But... You know, why would you uh, take a Rolls Royce and make it into a battering ram? Mike had a different idea in mind. He would take the best parts of Soviet and Canadian hockey and combine them into one strategy. 
The teamwork, the camaraderie, and the playmaking he'd borrow from Russia. The physicality, the strength, and the individualism he'd take from Canada. At a moment when the political barriers between Russia and North America were falling, the former enemies were also coming together in the rink to make hockey magic. Mike, in particular, had, you know, had always called it a hybrid style, where you had an equal amount of uh, skill, passing, playmaking, uh, puck possession game with the physicality of the North American game. Keeping track of puck possession was a new concept in North American hockey at that time. They only really counted the bare essentials, goals, assists, penalty minutes, plus minus if you were lucky. But modern analytics tells us that possession is everything. It's the best predictor of how a team will perform in the long run. And the dump and chase game produces bad possession stats. The Russian style of carrying the puck and passing it into the zone produces great possession stats. Mike understood this intuitively, even though the Jets' record didn't provide much proof that a hybrid style would work. Undefeated streak comes to an end with their 5-3 loss to the Penguins. Defeat the Winnipeg Jets 3-1. Will end in a 3-3 tie. A tie, almost a victory for the Winnipeg Jets. In Smith's last season, the Jets' record was abysmal. 51 losses against only 24 wins with 9 ties. The fans were livid and attendance was down at home games. Even though Mike had some good ideas about players and playmaking, the problem was most of those Russians he drafted just weren't any good. I think a fair criticism of a couple of years, we probably took a few too many Russians. But we're dragging that across Russian hockey, hoping to find a few, <laughs> a few good players. Ultimately, Zhamnov and Habibulin were the exceptions. The rule was a lot of underperforming Russian players who would never quite make it in the NHL. You had to choose some of these players based on the certain criteria that you saw, uh, but to judge their character, to judge their transition and ability to come to North America, very hard. So, of course, you would make mistakes. If the Russians that Smith had drafted could play, uh, I think Winnipeg would have warmed to them. This is Curtis Walker again, our Jets superfan. It was just that they, most of them couldn't play, and I think that was the, uh, that's why the skeptics kept growing and, uh, and, and for just cause. Here's producer Emma Morgenstern during our conversation with Mike Smith. Why don't you think the Jets were more successful when you're with them? Um, we were in a rebuilding phase. Um, we were drafting 18-year-old players. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. We were by far the poorest team in the league. Uh, we couldn't trade for players making a lot of money. We needed another couple of years. Do you know why they let you go? It was time. You know, I'd been there 14 and a half years, and I'd become what they call a lightning rod. No matter what I did was controversial. Yeah, I don't know. You'd have to ask the owner at the time if he did the right thing. But you know what? I slept a lot better. <laughs> the firing happened at the end of the 1994 season. Mike Smith's Russian experiment with the Winnipeg Jets had unequivocally failed. And in the eyes of some Jets fans, Mike actually sealed the fate of the franchise. There have certainly been disappointing ends to the season before for Jets fans. None could touch this one. As the NHL regular season ends today, the Jets will end their stay in Winnipeg. And the obituary of the Winnipeg Jets is now written. And I think I speak for every Manitoba hockey fan when I say you'll be missed. 
Thanks for the memories. The Jets became the Phoenix Coyotes in 1996, two years after Mike was fired, but he was still very much a scapegoat. I think Smith was an unmitigated disaster. How Smith had decimated the team was was one of the factors. If they had just hung on to the players that have been, that have been drafted, maybe their fortunes would be better. They go deeper in the playoffs, maybe that provides the impetus for the politicians and the powers that be to, to build a new arena that would have kept the team in Winnipeg. I mean, it's, it's a question that, that we'll never know. Even though things didn't work out in Winnipeg, the shift toward Russian players was starting to change the way hockey was played in the NHL. This is Tal Pinchevsky again. Eventually, obviously, these European players all earned the respect of everyone in the league, and the overall style of the league did eventually change and transition. The turning point came in the season after the Jets left Winnipeg, when the Russian Five won their Stanley Cup under coach Scotty Bowman. See, over the course of eight seasons, the Detroit Red Wings acquired five Russian players. And they weren't just any old bums. Some of them were products of Anatoly Tarasov's Soviet hockey machine, like Igor Larionov, who was known as the Gretzky of Russia. Then you had Sergei Fedorov, who was a young hotshot and the breakout Russian star of the NHL. Scotty Bowman saw something in these guys. He'd been around for quite some time already by this point, and he, he did put this unit together, and he could tell pretty quickly that they had this kind of on-ice chemistry and camaraderie that made them a complete mismatch against just about everyone they played against. And they, they could be physical. They could do a lot of the North, you know, quote-unquote North American stuff or blue-collar stuff. But they also had a level of skill, both offensively and defensively, that other teams just they couldn't keep up with. In other words, they were playing the hybrid style that Mike had imagined for his Jets. And maybe because it was a few more years removed from the Cold War. Or because it was Detroit and not Winnipeg. Or because these guys were just so good. The Red Wings fans had absolutely no trouble cheering on their adopted hometown heroes. A roaring Joe Lewis for two members of the former Soviet Red Army team. Former. They are now Detroit Red Wings. All the way, baby. The climate at this point in the mid to late 90s had really changed. For all intents and purposes, integrated into the NHL culture. At this point, just about every NHL team has at least one or two Russians or Eastern Europeans, and it's not really such a scandalous thing anymore. Just a couple hundred miles down the highway in Chicago, where he'd found a job with the Blackhawks, Mike Smith was watching that night as the Red Wings went all the way. It took the Red Wings a few years to figure it out, but they figured it out, and they went on to have a really good team for a long time. Did any part of you kind of feel vindicated uh, because you had kind of been one of the early adopters of this kind of, you know, looking for Russian players? No, I never felt I needed to be vindicated. I thought what I was doing was right, and I, there was enough, enough other people in the business thought what we were doing was right. So I don't, I never felt I needed to be vindicated. Mike Smith felt he was right all along. It's less clear if the Winnipeg Jets fans of the 90s agree with him after enduring the heartbreak of those awful seasons and then losing their team to Arizona. But maybe that's what it took for Mike to design his Russian experiment in the NHL. He just wanted to be different because he believed it would work. Listen to the sounds of Winnipeg. The white breathing of a nocturnal city in this sound. 
This episode was reported and produced by Emma Morgenstern with help from Joe Sykes. It was engineered by Tim Eininkel. Our editor was Jody Avergan. We had more editing help from Julia Henderson and Andrew Mambo. Research and production assistance came from Jonathan Yales and Paul Williard. Web design from Kate LaRue and Gus Wazarek. Tony Chow, Jorge Estrada, and Ryan Nantel ran things in the studio. Thanks also to Katie McAuliffe and Marcus Anderson. And another big shout-out to Pete Giannisini in Bristol. For more about Mike Smith and the Winnipeg Jets, check out the companion piece I wrote on 538.com. And for more 538 podcasts, visit 538.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to our parent podcast, Hot Takedown, in the Listen tab of your ESPN app. Next week on Ahead of Their Time, we tell the story of the stat head who ruined English soccer. He was a fundamentalist. Reap would not accept any kind of questioning of what he was doing. They didn't want to know him. So he was saying, you know, you don't realize the world has changed. We're living in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, look at the amount of math in our lives. I'd never come across that type of football um, before in terms of tactics, data the statistics easily you could describe it as football by numbers